Today we have the pleasure of hearing Christina Cleveland speak here at chapel. This isn't Christina's first time here. She was actually here a couple years back. Uh, she grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area where she was exposed to many different cultures. Growing up, her friends on her block represented nine different nationalities. Her parents had also planted a multi-ethnic church in the Bay Area as well. Now through these experiences, Christina has learned that different people perceive God differently. Now Christina is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and professor. She's now at Duke Divinity School, where she teaches classes on race, reconciliation, and conflict. She also leads a research team that is investigating self-compassion as a buffer for racial stress. As said before, Christina is an incredible author who published her book, Disunity in Christ. Disunity in Christ explores why we are so separated, though we are all supposedly gathered under God for one purpose. This is a little snippet from Christina's book that captures the purpose of the work beautifully. Despite Jesus' prayer that all Christians be one, divisions have been ep epidemic in the body of Christ from the beginning to the present. We cluster in theological groups, gender groups, age groups, ethnic groups, educational and economic groups. We criticize freely those who disagree with us, don't look like us, don't act like us, and don't even like what we like. Though we may think we know why this happens, Christina says we probably don't know why this happens. Now, the big question that arises from this is, if Christians are supposedly all about love, why do we seem to fight so much? Now, that's enough for me. It's time to give a very warm welcome to Ms. Christina Cleveland. Good morning. Good morning. I started studying for the SATs when I was in first grade. I didn't know at the time that I was actually studying for the SATs, but um, every day after school, my, I would come home from school and I was already in accelerated classes. And uh, so I had to stay an extra hour after school every day anyway to do extra reading comprehension exercises. But then I'd come, come home and I'd do my homework and then my dad would assign an extra hour and a half of um, SAT prep work that we had to do every single day after school. And I didn't know I was studying for the SATs, but then about 11 years later when I actually took the SATs, I was like, wow, this is like all remarkably familiar. I'm actually pretty good at this because I had been studying for like 11 years. And this is because my dad went to Yale and his brother went to Princeton and they decided to raise their kids so that we would be prepared to excel in um, higher ed in the United States. So in addition to studying for the SATs, um, my parents lied to us, and they told us that the only place open in the summer was the library. And so we were, we were pretty sheltered, you know, and so we just believed them. We were like, well, school's closed, so I guess everything's closed, the mall, the movie theater, so we'll just go to the library. And so every morning we'd wake up, have our breakfast, and then my mom would make lunch for us, and we'd spend the whole day at the library just doing reading and, you know, enrichment activities and uh, cultural activities. And then after dinner was when we got to go and play with our friends on our block. And it wasn't until I was in fifth grade that I realized that I discovered that there was an amusement park only 20 minutes from our house. And that's where everybody else went in the summer because I just didn't know. Another thing is my parents wanted us to be cultured. So we had season tickets to the San Francisco Opera, Ballet, and Symphony. And every month we would get all dressed up as a family and we would go to these concerts 
concerts. And when I was five years old, my first concert was a Leontine Price concert. You may not know who she is, but she's a very famous black opera singer. And so I was there at this concert when all of my friends were at home listening to Michael Jackson's Thriller. That was like their cultural engagement. I was at Leontine Price. Another thing that we did is um, when I was starting in third grade, my dad uh, signed us up for Science Academy at UC Berkeley, which was about a 45-minute train ride from our house. And so every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., I was in the chemistry building at UC Berkeley um, in the lab doing experiments, and I learned how to navigate that campus. I learned how to take the BART train up there, walk up all the way uphill past, past Telegraph Avenue, um, and spend all day in this lab. And I was like, you know, College is easy, I can do this. I'm already doing it, essentially. Um, and it was kind of like college at home, too, because my dad went to Yale, like I said, and everything we had at our house said Yale on it. Yale toothbrushes, Yale towels, Yale um, soap, soap dishes, Yale sweatshirts, Yale everything. And every night at dinner, he would make us recite the eight Ivy League schools. Because he wanted us to know where we were going to school, okay? And so when I was 15 years old, I was going to public school at the time, I was in all the honors classes, because it was not okay to not be in the honors classes in my family. And I, I ended up going to uh, boarding school for my last two years of high school. I went to a school called Phillips Exeter in New Hampshire. So I went all the way, 3,000 miles away, so I could go to this very, very, very prestigious college prep school so that I would be especially prepared for college. So it was not much of a surprise to anybody when um, I ended up getting into Dartmouth, which is an Ivy League school, and a few other schools too, and I ended up choosing Dartmouth. And I remember at the time thinking and believing some of the things that I had been taught over and over and over again in these very elite schools that I had gone to, that um, I, you know, I, the reason why I'm at Dartmouth the reason why I've been so successful in education is because I'm just amazing. I'm, the, I'm literally the best and the brightest. And that's what people would come and often, you know, we'd have these chapel talks at school and they would come and they'd say, you're the best and the brightest in America. And we'd be like, we kind of are. Yeah, that's us, you know. Um, and that's what I thought. It, I didn't understand at the time that I was, I was Ivy League bound from the moment I was conceived. I didn't understand at the time that I was college-bound from the moment that I was conceived. I didn't understand that only 11% of kids in the United States grew up in families where both parents went to college, and that if you grew up, grew up in one of those families, you're three times as likely to go to college. I didn't understand at the time that going to college would put me in the elite in our country, that less than 30% of American adults have a college education. I didn't understand at the time that less than 1% of adults worldwide have a college education. I didn't understand that I had benefited from a system. I'd benefited from a way in which our society values formal education, values the people who have formal education, creates opportunities and openings for people who have that education. And as soon as you get entree into that world, either by being born into a family or by somehow attaining entrance into that world of the, of the educational elite, of the people who are college-bound, then the door just swings wide open in our society. And we live in a society where people who 
have, are formally educated are accommodated, while people who are informally educated are alienated. So now, I have a college degree, and that opened doors for me to get a PhD from one of the top social psychology programs, one that was fully funded, so I didn't have to take out loans for that. And then it opened up doors for me to get book contracts and for me to keep getting great jobs and ending up at Duke University as a faculty member. And it gives me opportunities now where I'm invited to come and speak in places like this on big stages like this one, or people want to know what do I think about the political climate, or people want to know how am I interpreting this particular scripture, and people want to know what I'm thinking and what I'm doing, and I have a platform, and I have a voice, and I have opportunities, and it just snowballs, and it all began with being born into this family where I had middle-class parents who had formal education, and they knew how to support me every step of my educational journey. Now, sometimes I talk about this with my students, and they get a little bit upset. And they say, Dr. Cleveland, you're not giving yourself enough credit for your hard work. You know, they kind of react against my story, and they say, you know, you earned, you earned it. I mean, yeah, maybe you have more of a voice than other people in society. Maybe, maybe you have opportunities that other people didn't have, but, but you earned every last bit of it. You deserve to have more of a voice than other people do. And my response to that is, you know what, you're, in some ways you're right. I did work hard for everything that I have. To say that, you know, I'm not saying that I didn't work hard. I was there. I was there for the all-nighters. I was there for, I wrote every last word of my dissertation. I certainly worked hard. But in every single way, every step of the way in my educational journey, I was supported by my community, by society, and that's not necessarily the case for other people, for people who aren't born into families like mine, for people who don't have opportunities to go to college. When I was um, an undergrad, I was a sociology and psychological and brain sciences double major, and so I learned a lot about inequality in our world. And it was, it was fairly theoretical for me at that point because, you know, I was reading these books about income inequality or racial inequality or gender inequality, and I could, you know, name all the theories, and I could say this is what, you know, Durkheim thought about that or um, this is what Weber thought about that. Um, but it really hit home for me in a very personal personal way, the ways in which I have benefited from inequality, the ways in which our society separates the haves and the have-nots. When I moved into a really low-income, predominantly black neighborhood, and this was a, a huge change for me because even though I'm black, I didn't grow up in a low-income, predominantly black neighborhood. I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. Um, and so there were, there were a lot of cultural differences that I encountered. But over time, I got to know my neighbors really well. I just threw myself into that community. Um, and I became really good friends with a neighbor two doors down. And she was my age, also a black woman. She had five kids. She was a single mom. She was working hard. She was on government assistance. And she was just a heroic wonderful, wonderful woman, and I got to know her kids well, too, and her oldest daughter was a first-year student in high school. And so I, got, I started hanging out with Anaya, and eventually I got to know Anaya's friends. And eventually we started having breakfast at my house on Saturday mornings, and it started out with like four of, four of Anaya's friends, and then it ended up being 12, and then it ended up being 30, and it was wonderful. And I would make waffles for everybody, and we would talk about life. 
And I was the first person they had ever met in this community who looked like them, who not only had gone to college, but had a PhD and actually taught at a college. And Breakfast Club, which is what we called it, started out as just breakfast, but then it turned into breakfast and brunch, and it turned into breakfast and brunch and lunch, and then afternoons, and they were saying, you know, we love that you went to college. Can we start doing our homework here? We'd love to get some support. We don't have the sort of academic support that you had. And so I said, yes. And let's start talking about college and what it would take for you to go to college. And, and then it became this, well, actually, you have a washer and a dryer, too. Can we do our laundry here, too? And I said, yes. This is holistic. We're going to do it all here every Saturday at my house. So I had 30 girls in my house every Saturday, and we started talking about what life is like for them. And they have dreams, and they had goals, and they had fortitude, and they were willing to work, and they were willing to show up every single week and get help on their homework, start thinking about college. And it wasn't until working and hanging out with these girls for about a year that it occurred to me that they all go to the high school four blocks from my house, a really low-income, poorly, poorly, poorly funded high school. And it occurred to me as I was looking over their curriculum, helping them try to prepare to, apl to apply to colleges like Indiana Wesleyan, and it became clear that the curriculum that their school offers does not give them the requirements that they need to apply to a four-year college. So they, can, they could defy all odds, right? They, they could figure out a way to successfully graduate from high school with very little support in the home and in the community, but the school does not offer the classes that they need in order to get, to even apply to college. The school did not offer any modern languages. The school did not offer any arts. The school only offered three years of English classes. You need four to apply to college. And so they could have done everything right. They could have beat all odds. They could have, in the face of difficulty, every step of the way, facing impediments, facing poor funding, inexperienced teachers, overcrowded classrooms, unsafe conditions. They could have somehow survived all that and succeeded and still not had the opportunity to join the educational elite, this educational elite that I was born into, that I was destined to be part of. And it really hit home for me in that relationship with those girls when I realized it's not just about how hard you try. It's not just about how, hard, how much you want it. It's not just about your motivation, your willingness to keep trying in the face of difficulty. There's a whole lot more going on. We live in a world in where there is inequality. We live in a world in which people like me can be born into this world and the wind is behind me. So I'm walking towards my goals and if I put effort in, there's a good chance that I'm going to get an outcome that I'm looking for. If I try, there's a good chance that I'm going to succeed. But if the wind is against my back and is blowing in my favor, that means it's against other people. And these girls were facing an environment in which the wind is against them. And every step of the way, they were facing impediments. They were facing a lack of support, lack of resources, lack of opportunities. We talk about boundless love. We talk so much about wanting to love like Jesus loves. 
But love cannot exist in the midst of inequality. We cannot love boundlessly unless we understand what are the boundaries of love in our society and where am I located along those boundaries? Our society is set up for people like me to think that I deserve more, that I'm a little bit better than, that that the inequality that exists is something that can be explained away, something that maybe should exist, because, you know, oftentimes people think of the informally educated, well, they're just a little bit lazy, or they're just not trying that hard. Or their motivation's not in the right place. Or they have some sort of character issue. If they just got their heart right before God. And it makes us feel a little bit better about where, we are, where we're at. But then I wonder, how can we truly, truly love? I love the song that we sang last about wanting to love like Jesus loved. And this is the exact same thing that John invites us into in 1 John 4, where he says, there's this love that I'm calling you to that will actually set you free. And it looks like Jesus' love. And I I work a lot with um, students who love Jesus. I teach at Duke Divinity School. So most of my students uh, love Jesus a lot, want to serve Jesus, particularly want to serve Jesus as pastors and churches. And they are earnest and they are excited. And they're a lot like the undergrads that I meet at schools like Indiana Wesleyan. They want to love. They want to love well. And I love that about so many Christians here in the West. We want to love well. The thing is, though, is we often don't have the social awareness to actually know how to do that. If I want to love boundlessly, what are the boundaries that I need to be aware of? If I want to love across power lines, if I want to love across inequality, I need to recognize that inequality. I need to recognize how I benefit from that inequality. And when we look at Jesus, it seems to be the case that Jesus is actually pretty socially aware. Jesus didn't love vaguely. Jesus didn't just send, you know, love bombs to us from the Trinity and hope that we received it, hope that it made sense to us, hope that it translated well to us. Jesus was very strategic and specific and socially aware And John points this out to this when he's talking about the incarnation in this passage that these two students um, read to us earlier. It's, It's wonderful. He's talking about Jesus leaving this perfect world of the Trinity where there was perfect, equal, mutual, reciprocal love. There was no inequality. There was no difference. There was no haves and have nots in the Trinity. And Jesus was participating in that and loved that. And I love how Julian of Norwich says, we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. That helps me see that the Trinity was a good place for Jesus to be. There was intimacy. There was true love. It was wonderful. But Jesus knew that we did not have access to that love. In the same way that my friends and my neighborhood don't have access to the life that I have because there's an inequality, there's a deep, wide chasm between us. And what did Jesus do? Jesus left 
I don't think Jesus actually, let me rephrase, I don't think Jesus actually left the Trinity because it's like this metaphysical, you know, reality. But Jesus engaged in a mission, a cross-cultural mission across time and space and power and humanity to be with us in a way that cost a lot to him, in a way that was costly. I love talking about the incarnation, but to me, it's, it's a little bit um, hard for me to know, well, okay, if I want to love like Jesus, how exactly do I participate in the incarnation? How do I cross metaphysical planes? That's difficult for me to wrap my, heads, my head around. So what I've done is I have devised a different hermeneutic of looking about the way that Jesus was incarnational in his life on earth. Because I can understand how Jesus interacts with other humans as a human being. And I can start to model my own love after that, after that pattern in the way that John says, pay attention to the way that Jesus is doing it. So I decided to take John at his word and really pay attention to the way that Jesus is doing it. And I'm going to give you one example that's a personal favorite of mine. But I actually want to invite you to like, I mean, if you have class after, don't do it. But not during class. Or maybe your professor will let you during class. But go home and look through the Gospels and look to see how Jesus is loving across power differences. How Jesus is addressing inequality in every single one of his situations. Because that's what I've done as I've looked at Scripture. And oftentimes, you know, we think, well, Jesus' world was kind of different than ours. But in a lot of ways, it was exactly the same. There was rampant inequality. And in some ways, Jesus was very oppressed. He was, you know, he was poor, relatively poor. Um, he was a member of um, the Jewish state, which was under occupation from the Romans. So he didn't have complete freedom to go wherever he wanted. But in a lot of ways, Jesus had a lot of power in his society. In a lot of ways, Jesus was like me. He benefited from inequality. Society accommodated him in ways that it alienated other people. Jesus was a man in his society, and women didn't have a lot of power. Jesus was free in a slave society. Jesus was maybe not Roman as a Jewish person, but he also was not a Samaritan. And so he had some power in that sense. He had some what we might call privilege in that sense. And if you look at how Jesus is socially aware in his, in his interactions with people and what he does to demonstrate love, it is not vague. It is very extremely strategic. So here's a story that I really love. I've been a Young Life volunteer for about 10 years. I've done wildlife, which is junior high Young Life, which is just like a lot. It's just a lot of hormones and awkwardness. Um, <laughs> But one of the stories that we tell every single year in Wildlife Club in the fall when we're trying to tell kids about Jesus, right? This is who Jesus is. This is the kind of person that we're inviting you to be in relationship with. We often tell the story of uh, Jesus and, the, and Jairus and the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. It's like a classic young life story. So I, I decided with my, my, with my hermeneutic that I had devised, you know, what is Jesus doing socially? In this situation, how is Jesus understanding the inequality at play in this situation? And what is Jesus strategically doing to demonstrate love? And how does that love bring about wholeness? How does that love break down boundaries? How is that love truly boundless? 
And so Jesus is, this is a really peculiar story because this is Jesus at the beginning of his, of his career, right, of his ministry career. And up until this point, Jesus had pretty much only been healing and um, doing miracles among the ragamuffins in society. Kind of, you know, the people that are on the margins, a leper here, a beggar there, a blind person there. You know, the people that, you know, I'm sure people are wowed by the miracles, but at this point, Jesus hadn't really done anything for some of the important people in society. And so here, Jesus is, as usual, surrounded by crowds. People are clamoring to get to him because he has this amazing healing power. He has this boundless love, and everybody wants some of it. And so Jairus, who's a leader in his society, Jairus is someone who's a little bit like me in some ways, right? Jairus has voice and influence and power and was probably born into a family where, you know, he was on his way to success. And um, so he was, you know, he was someone that might, might be similar to a lot of Americans in our country, I mean, in our world. And Jairus says, my child is sick. Please come heal my child. And Jesus is ready to go and heal Jairus' child. Jesus' love truly is boundless. There's no one that Jesus doesn't want to heal. But as he's walking towards Jairus' house, and everyone in the crowd is paying attention to Jesus and Jairus, because now Jesus is going to go heal this important person's child. This is a big deal. All eyes are on Jesus. All eyes are on Jairus. The two most important people, the people who have the voice, who have the power in society. And a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, probably doesn't smell great, probably doesn't look great, someone who's been cast out by society, someone who in the Jewish culture and the Jewish theology was probably seen as deserving of her illness because oftentimes they equated spiritual sickness with physical sickness. So, you know, she's sick, but she probably kind of deserves it. She probably deserves her lot in life. This woman touches Jesus And all three of the synoptic gospels say Jesus, she was immediately healed. She was immediately healed, but after she was healed, after the miracle was done, Jesus stopped and he said, who touched me? Who touched me? And even his disciples were like, that's the dumbest question ever. Why would you ask that? Hundreds of people are touching you right now. Everybody wants to touch you. Everyone's touching you. Stop asking that question. And with my hermeneutic, I want to know, why would Jesus ask that question? Jesus already healed her. It was done. He could move on to the next miracle. What's going on in this social situation where all eyes are on Jesus and on Jairus, the important people, the people who deserve a voice, the people who deserve to be the center of attention? And by asking that question, who touched me? I love the way Mark tells the story. The woman answers, it was I. And then Mark says, and she got to tell her story. And now all eyes were shifted from Jesus and from Jairus, the important people, the people with privilege, the people who deserve to have a voice, the people who deserve to have opportunities. And everything is shifted to this woman who's been left out, who's been cast aside, who's been marginalized, who's undeserving of good things. And she was the center of attention. She was the center of what God was doing in that moment. And she got to tell her story. Jesus' boundless love was strategic. Jesus shifted 
the attention of that entire crowd away from the powerful people and on to the least powerful in their midst. And that love not only healed her body, but it healed her soul. It healed her social standing. It, made, it created equality in a world where there was no equality. And then afterwards, and I love this, Jesus still went and healed Jairus's child. Because in the cosmos of God's boundless love, there's room for everyone. If Jesus stops to heal someone who's been marginalized, that doesn't mean he's not going to also heal the powerful. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about whether there's enough love for everyone to go around, if there's enough power for everyone to go around. In the economy of the family of God, love truly is limitless. God's power truly is limitless. If we truly believe in the resurrection, that we cannot have a theology of scarcity. We can't have a fear that if we make things right, if we address inequality in our midst, if we love strategically in following the path of Jesus, which means that we give up our space, we give up our status the way Jesus did, so that other people can have opportunities, other people can have a voice, other people can be the center of what's going on. I've talked a little bit about my story and how I personally have benefited from economic inequality. I, oh, that was dramatic. Um, <laughs> I personally have benefited from economic inequality, right? I personally have benefited from living in a world where the, the formally educated are, are accommodated while the informally educated are alienated, are not seen as, as valuable. And that's, that's a very specific division and inequality that I've had to be strategic about, thinking, how do I cross? How do I love boundlessly in the midst of this inequality? What does that look like for me? At what cost to me? How do I cross this huge, wide gulf? But economic inequality is not the only one. There's so many other ways in which we have inequality in our world in one way, is racial inequality. And that's not something that I benefit from because I'm African-American. But if you're in this room and you identify as white, then you do benefit from that. There is inequality. We live in a society, in a society where white people are accommodated while non-white people are alienated. I was talking to my students about a study that shows this so clearly. Some sociologists were really interested in understanding does simply having a white-sounding name make you more likely to get invited for a job opportunity, for a job interview? Simply having a white-sounding name. Does society accommodate white people while alienating other people? And so they sent out resumes to 500 different companies, and the resumes were equal. They were all exactly the same. And this was someone who on the resume was super qualified for the job. This is the kind of person where it's like a no-brainer. Of course you're going to invite this person for an interview. They're perfect for the job. The only thing they changed on the resume, the resumes were verbatim exactly the same except for one thing. They changed the name on the resume. And so there were two white resumes 
And the names were Emily and Greg, white-sounding names. And there were two black resumes, Jamal and Lakeisha. Sent out these resumes to 500 companies, and they found out that Emily and Greg were twice as likely to get called in for an interview than Jamal and Lakeisha. Our myth of, mer of meritocracy, this idea that if you just try hard enough, you'll succeed, gets a little bit busted with studies like this. Because no matter how hard Jamal and Lakeisha try, they're only going to be half as successful as Emily and Greg. We live in a society where white people are accommodated and everyone else is alienated. I was talking to one of my students, this is when I was teaching at Bethel University, which is similar to Indiana Wesley, and it's in St. Paul. And my student said, well, Dr. Cleveland, I mean, isn't that just black people's own fault for naming their kids such weird names? I mean, what do you expect? What do black people expect? I mean, if you're going to have a weird name like that, why? I mean, of course people aren't going to want to hire you. That's just weird. And I said, yes, Mackenzie. <laughs> Jamal and Lakeisha is a really weird name, right? I mean, so I said, that's, an ex that's a wonderful example of how white people are accommodated while people of color are alienated in our society. And so sometimes people ask me, well, you know, are you saying that simply because I was born white, or simply because I was born into a family where both my parents went to college, or simply because I was born into a middle class or higher family, I'm inherently at fault for all these problems? I'm inherently at fault for these divisions? And I said, no, of course not. You're not inherently at fault, but what you have done is you've inherited a fault. And as members of the family of God, we have a wonderful opportunity to be part of this love, this boundless love, and take a look at these faults. Take a look at these divisions. Take a look at these chasms between us and identify where we're located and what can we do about that. We're going to have a talk back session because you might be thinking, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? Don't worry. I have some ideas. So if you're interested in coming to that, I would love to invite you. We're actually going to watch a video um, that just tells you where it is, the talk back session, and then I'm going to pray after the video, and then after I pray, we'll be dismissed.